If you would, why don't you go ahead and turn to uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 18. Uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. We'll read through verse 30 this morning. In the early 1900s, there was a man named Samuel Langley who set out to be the first man to pilot a plane. And Langley was uh, unique in the sense of he had the background to do it. He worked at the Smithsonian Institute. I do speak for a living. And he taught at Harvard. He taught mathematics. Uh, He was connected. Uh, He had uh, the business connections. He had the government connections uh, to pull it off. Uh, He had the financing. He had a $50,000 grant from the War Department uh, to make this happen, which doesn't sound like much to us today, but then it was a a lot of money. Uh, He put together a dream team, educated uh, men to help accomplish this task, to be the first uh, to do flight, uh, to fly. He had the press following him around. Every move he made, it seemed, he was reported on. Updates were given about what he was doing. The country was anxious, if you will, to find out uh, how this was going to happen and when it was going to happen. They wanted to know. But there was somebody else working on a plane, working on being the first person to take a flight, Wilbur and Orville Wright, of course. Uh, They had amassed their own dream team to be the first person uh, to fly. And the difference with the Wright brothers was they didn't have all the business and government connections. Uh, They didn't have the education or background that that Langley and his crew had. They didn't have access to the the best materials and the best resources. They didn't have uh, the, the most educated folks. But they did have passion. They did understand why they were doing doing what they were doing. They did have a why. It was concrete. And so, of course, on December 17th, 1903, out of a bicycle shop, they were the first to take flight, the first man to fly a plane. The Wright brothers had done it while this other team had failed. The other team that had all the connections, all the resources, all the everything the best that this country could, could throw at them in terms of a, a resume-quality team they had, but they didn't make it. They weren't the first ones. And so the natural question is, why? How is it that the Wright brothers were able to do this, even though they seemed at a disadvantage compared to Langley and and his crew? Well, some would say is they knew their why. They had the vision. They had the passion. They were were teamed up with people who shared this, this one priority of desire to fly and to do this and to make this happen. They knew their why, and they were deeply motivated. And that's what propelled them, no pun intended, to do this and to be the first ones to accomplish this task. The why is so important. And I think Paul, in these words, in this paragraph that we're about to read, is telling us, remember your why. And I'm going to give you reasons why you should be trusting God to endure in the midst of everything that you're facing, why you should keep walking with him, why you should keep trusting him, why you should keep believing in him when your circumstances are difficult, when there's uncertainty, when there's conflict, or when there's just boredom and the monotony of the day-to-day. Paul is telling us this is why we need to persevere, why we need to be constant, why we need to be diligent. So as you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read Romans 8, 
verses 18 through 30. Let's hear God's word. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in the hope we were saved, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified. Those he justified he also glorified. This is God's word and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you and and pray that you would instill in us a sense of the truth of this word, these promises of this reality, of the glory that is to come, that it would rest upon us as we weave our way through this passage. Minister to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. ESVN has this documentary series called, that they call 30 for 30. Don't ask me why they call it for 30 for 30. I think they've articulated why they call it that at some point, but I just, it just didn't register with me. But in 2012, they did a documentary series called Broke. And this documentary uh, was uh, about uh, professional athletes in their lives after they had left uh, the field, whether they left the basketball court or the NFL uh, field, what their life was like financially afterwards, because many of them... Uh, either after retirement or soon after retirement, are broke. They have no money. And the the documentary starts out with this statistic. It says, by the time they have been retired for two years, 78% of former NFL players have gone bankrupt or are under financial stress. Within five years of retirement, an estimated 60% of former NBA players are broke. Now, this is 2012. I don't know what it's like uh, today, but the documentary went into answering the question, how is it that these men who are having these at least six-figure contracts, how is it that they can be bankrupt? How is it they can be broke? How can they do that? And the immediate takeaway, and and what you're probably thinking is, well, they, they buy all these expensive cars, and they buy these big homes. And yes, and the documentary goes into those details about that, but it, it talks about other factors as well. Uh, many times these contracts are extended to men who are in their early 20s, if not maybe sometimes 18 or 19, 20-year-olds 
who had these huge contracts, this huge amount of money all of a sudden. And part of the problem is they're just, they just are not around other people that have, this kind of, that have a business mindset to manage that kind of money. And they're at this extreme disadvantage that way because it's proper stewardship, if you will, of that kind of income is just not modeled to them. And so if you give a, a 21-year-old all this money, he's going to spend it. And he's going to spend it in, in just what we would say is just these gross ways and ways we could not imagine. But the documentary went into some other details. Some got caught up in gambling, and they incurred all these, these huge amount of debt. Uh, many times they talked about part of their losing their finances goes with the head, if their contract changes or they switch teams, they've got to move to different cities, and that means starting over again. And so that takes away, that's more money that they're having to spend. Uh, they've got to have lawyers. They've got to have agents, and that costs money. Uh, they don't budget well, particularly, I don't know how the system's set up now, but the time of the documentary, they get paid during the season, but during the off-season, there's no paychecks coming in. And so if you're not a good budgeter, those, those off-seasons can really hit you hard. Uh, many of them made just bad investments. You know, they've got friends coming up to them and say, hey, let's buy this restaurant together. Uh, some of them got involved in, in car washes for some reason was a big deal. The point is they make these bad business investments, throwing this, this money away that just didn't add up. And probably the, one of the things that, that probably hit them hard and had to, they really struggled to deal with, they would have friends and family constantly hitting them up for money. Hey, man, can you help me out with this? Can you help me out with that? And if you've ever been in that situation, it's hard to say no to somebody that you love. Bernie Kosar, who quarterback for the Cleveland Browns and was a part of this documentary, he said at one point in his life while he was, was playing that he was supporting any t- anywhere between 25 to 50 families on a regular basis. And so you, you hear these kind of factors that go in, and it's like, well, no wonder they're broke. No wonder they're, they've encountered this huge financial stress because of all this stuff they're just not equipped to deal with. And I think you can, and that, all that makes sense, but I think underneath all those reasons of why they're, they're driven to, to being broke, and I think the underlying problem is there's no value for what lies in the future, and we think about that in financial terms. There's no valuing of what's going to happen, where I'm going to be 5, 6, 10, 20 years from now. Not valuing the future was their problem. Not thinking about the future. And that's true of us as well. Uh, the today is so important. How many times do I just need to make it through today? I just need to make it through this week. There's no concept of the future. And there's no putting weight on the future and the importance of the future I think if, you're, if you were paying attention to the beginning of this passage, Paul is saying, put a lot of importance in the future. Put a lot of weight in the future. Today is necessary. Today is, is important. But don't let that distract you from what is coming. After all, what does he say in verse 18? Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying it may be bad, but what's coming down the pipe, what's coming in the future on your calendar is going to be so glorious, it's going to be so amazing that you can't even compare it. There's not, there's not even words to describe it. So Paul's stressing, us, stressing here the future is important. And living your life in light of the future has huge ramifications for how you're living your life today. And so what I want to do with this passage, I want to talk about there's three kind of promises that I think we see in this passage that relate to today, living today in light of the future. 
And those promises are, are these. First, I want to talk about promised freedom. And then I want to talk about promised faithfulness. And then promised, uh, excuse me, promised freedom, promised presence. Talk about the Holy Spirit. And then promised faithfulness, okay? Promised freedom, presence, faithfulness. The first one is promised uh, freedom. I don't know about you, but um, I like to watch the news, but I really don't like to watch the news. Uh, there's one news program that I'll record, and I'll watch it when it's over so I can just kind of zip through it. And some stories are interesting. Some is just nonsense I don't want to understand or want, I don't care to know about. But I, there's always this tension. It's like, yeah, I kind of want to keep up with what's going on, but I don't really like the news. And some of you may feel the same way. It's because it's always so negative. It's always so controversial. It's always so divisive. It's always so nitpicky. There's always talk about violence that's going on in the world. There's always talk about suffering that's going on in the world. And I just don't like to watch it because it's so negative. It's such a struggle to watch. And some of you may feel the same way about the news. And if you maybe take a step back and you think about it a little, it's like a little bit, all this hardship that's going on in the world, and you begin to ask, well, where is God in this? What is God doing? There's all this suffering, all this, these natural disasters that happen. Where is God in this process? And critics of, of Christianity will come along and they'll say, well, let's say if, if God is a God of love, that's fine, but he must not be a God of power because he's not doing anything to change what's going on around us. You can say he loves us, but he must not have the power. Or some will say, well, he has the power. He has the power to do this or that. And because there's still suffering, because there's still hardship around us, he must not be a God of love because he's not acting. And one of the things that, that's failed to be placed in this equation, this understanding of, of life and suffering and difficulty is sin is the importance of, of sin and how that has brought destruction, how that has brought uh, upheaval, how that's brought this suffering into the world around us. Meaning that it's, it's not so much an issue of God's goodness or his power or his love, but it's an issue of our sin and the brokenness of the world that we live in. The opening chapters of Genesis make it clear. Adam fell, he disobeyed, and there were consequences for him but it wasn't just him that sin affected, it affected all of creation as well, which gives rise to what Paul is talking about here in this passage. Uh, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it. And then verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Much of what Romans has been talking about, and you've, if you've been here tracking with us, it's talking about the gospel, talking about our sin, it's about our need for forgiveness, and the righteousness of Christ and what God has done for us, that the gospel and the truth that's there and how it applies to us. But here in, in these moments, in, in these verses, Paul is saying the gospel is not only relevant for you as individuals, but it has bearing, has relevance for all of creation, because of the suffering, because it's this picture of how creation is in bondage, that it's not uh, living, it's not existing like God set it up to exist and be around us. Uh, big picture, Paul is saying that no matter how difficult and bad life gets right now, God is saying to us, it's going to be amazing what he's going to do in the future, that something uh, significant is going to happen. 
that God is going to change things. He's going to turn things around, if you will. Remember that Paul is a man who knows suffering. We, if you dig into all the places where he talks about the hardships and the imprisonments and the beatings and all the things that he endured, he knows hardship. If you are at a party and somebody is sharing, you know, I went through this difficult time because of this, this, and this, Paul could turn to you and say, that, that sounds pretty bad, but let me tell you what happened to me. He can always one-up us. He can always one-up us with, with difficulties that he has faced. And yet, I think in this passage, you discover a little bit how is it that Paul was able to move through that, how he was able to endure that with such confidence and with such dependence upon the Lord because he knew what God was going to do. He knew the reality, believed in the reality, the hope that what God was going to do changed something, this world, this creation, to something far more glorious, far more amazing. How does the book of Revelation end? It ends with the promise of what? A new heavens and a new earth. That God is going to transform what's going on here. Isaiah describes what we're talking about like this. He says, The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on any of my holy mountains. mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters, are, the waters cover the sea. Here's the, the takeaway. Here's maybe something that this means uh, for us. It's like God is saying to us, I know things are bad. I know your, your situation is difficult. I know that life may not be meeting your expectations, that your dreams that you had five, ten years uh, ago are not your present reality, that you may not be in the place that you expected. But God is saying there is glory to come. Be patient. Wait. Endure. Persevere. Because of the weight of the glory of what he's going to do. Or maybe think about it like this. Go somewhere like the Grand Canyon. And you look at, the, and look at that creation, and it's amazing. It's breathtaking to see the scope of what that is. Go to the beach. You sit on the beach, and you watch a sunset or a sunrise, and you hear the waves, and it's peaceful. It's calming. It's, it's beautiful just to take in that experience. Go and view the mountains like the Rocky Mountains, like real mountains, and you would be in awe of their majesty, of their, their size, and just their significance. Paul is saying here in this passage, as amazing as that creation is, as amazing as that is, God is going to do something far more greater. Something far more amazing is in the pipeline. Something far more amazing is what God is going to do because Christ sits on his throne. Because the gospel is true. It has eternal value to us as believers, but it has significance for his creation as well. As we remember what he's going to do, to remember and put weight and stress on the future, it helps us move through our lives today, I think. The next thing to talk about here is God's promised presence. God's promised presence. Maybe you've, you've wondered, you know, every time we pray, here from the pulpit, or you pray with, with other believers or at a prayer time, uh, we'll end those prayers with, in Jesus' name. We always end it with, in Jesus' name. And some of you know the answer to this. You think, well, why do we always have to end in Jesus' name? Why, is it, why can't we just say, 
okay, or amen, or that's all I have to say. The reason we say in Jesus' name is because we go to God the Father, not based on our own record, not because of, uh, of our own righteousness, but we're going in the, on the basis of Christ's righteousness. We go wearing uh, Christ's garments, if you will. The only reason we have access to the Father is because of what Christ has done for us. Our communication with the Father, our prayer with the Father, it's not a, a, a me and God the Father situation, but Christ is a part of that communication. He's part of us being able to pray and have access to him because of our lives are in such dependence upon him because we are in him, in Christ. But not only that is a factor in our prayer lives, Paul is telling us there's, there's another factor in our prayer lives, and he brings us to the idea of the Holy Spirit and his role in our prayer lives. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless, gro- wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Basically, what's this passage saying? The Holy Spirit helps you in prayer because you're weak to do it. Because there's something that that we're missing. And you say, okay, why can't I pray? I mean, why why isn't my prayer list, my needs good enough? Why is there a weakness attached to it? Well, the weakness relates to that we don't know the will of God. We don't know the mind, the mind of God. We're limited by our circumstances, by our present reality, by our experiences. We don't have the mind of God. We don't see and know all that he is doing. The, the, this is important because the Bible promises that God will answer our prayers in accordance with his will. And so to know a powerful prayer life, to know God powerfully answering your prayers is contingent upon us praying according to God's will for our lives and for any kind of circumstances that we find ourselves in. But the rub is what? We don't always know the will of God. We don't always know the will of God for this situation or that situation or this relationship or that marriage or, or this child or that institution or this uh, whatever it may be. We don't know all the details. We're limited by our experience. Enter the Holy Spirit. He says, I know your weaknesses but I know the will of God. I know what's happening there. And so if you really want to see your prayers answered, we pray in dependence upon the Spirit, trusting that he intercedes for us, knowing the mind of God, knowing how God is going to act and respond, and we can pray according to his will. I can remember being in, in college, and there was this girl I was attracted to, and we started to hang out. We started to spend time together together, We'd hang out in groups and maybe go out one-on-one a couple times. And it kind of got to the point in this relationship where it's like, I really like this girl. She's the greatest, and I really want something long-term here. And it was kind of at that moment I began to pray, God, let this be the one. Let this be the one. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I pray and pray and pray, and the relationship broke up. It didn't work out. And I was crushed. I was, like, so disappointed. God, why didn't you answer my prayer? And I think about that situation today, and I think that was so silly to pray like that and get caught up emotionally in that relationship because she wasn't the one for me. If I'd married her and it was a long-term thing, it would have been a train wreck. It would have been a disaster because I know the wife that I have right now and how perfect that relationship is and how perfect she is for me. Now, did God answer my prayer? Yes and no. Uh, No in the sense of he didn't give me what I was asking 
according to my will. I wanted the relationship to work. He didn't answer that. But he did answer it yes in the sense of he answered it according to his will. He did answer my prayer of, God, I need help. I'm coming to you with this relationship. Would you work here? And it's like he took that request and he says, this is not what the will of the Father is. This is what the will of the Father is. And God honoring that in my life. And that's what God does in our lives as well. So maybe two takeaways at two applications. The first is to pray in the Spirit, to pray independent upon the Spirit, knowing that he intercedes for us, means that we pray in humility and submission. It means that we pray with humility and submission to God in our prayer lives, that we go to God's throne at the end of the day being willing to submit to his will, being willing to submit to his desires. Again, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know his will in this situation or that situation. We don't know completely, how do I pray for my child? We know that we need to pray for him. We need to pray for her, but we don't know perfectly what they need, but God the Father does. We never go to the throne and say, God, this is what it should be like. If you do this, this, and this, it's going to work out perfectly. We don't approach God's throne like that, but we approach it with a sense of humility, trusting that prayer works, and he works through our prayers as the Spirit's interceding for us. The second takeaway for us is is this. Don't allow the fact that you don't know God's perfect will keep you from praying. The very fact that we have this promise, that we have the Holy Spirit in our life, that he intercedes on our behalf according to God's will, and God the Father knows that the mind of the Spirit, he knows all these things. Don't let that keep you from praying. Don't let that keep you from going to him uh, aggressively and openly And just with everything, laying it out before him, trusting that he's going to intercede, trusting that he's going to use those prayers and bring them to the Father. We should be praying radical prayers, awesome prayers, big prayers, because God is a God that that loves to hear us pray. He loves to answer prayer. He loves to work according to his will as we rely upon him. That's God's promised presence. The last thing to look at here is, is God's promised faithfulness, God's promised faithfulness. I can remember reading a a biography of Jonathan Edwards, and some of you know that name. Edwards was a a pastor, a theologian. He is a huge figure in American history. And Edwards, who's written all these works, all these these books, who's had this part of the the revival of George Whitfield and had this, this incredible, rich ministry, was fired by his church. If you're a pastor, you read that, and that kind of scares you a little bit. It makes me, it makes me pretty uncomfortable to think if they fired Edwards, this great man of God, this great theologian, this great writer, uh, preacher. They got rid of him. They can get rid of, you know, everybody's on the chopping block, so to speak. But they fired Edwards. And there were some observers of Edwards and how he uh, processed that um, news of being fired and that uh, disconnect from that congregation and how he moved on. And the observation went like this, basically. They saw Edwards, and they looked at his life, and it was like you couldn't tell that something tragic had just happened to him. There's no way of knowing that that this congregation who he loved and given his life to, prayed for it, that they had removed, taken the rug out from him, so to speak, and taken away his ability to earn for his family and earn for uh, his own life. 
Uh, One eyewitness put it like this. He says, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man, and this is what I love. He appeared like a man whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills in his life. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Love that, that picture of a man who lives like that. And you've got to ask, how can he do that? How is it that he could walk through such tragedy, such disappointment like that? Verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who, he love, who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Edwards was a man who modeled, this is what it's like to embrace that promise. This is what it's like to, to, to know the reality that God is working in my life for my good. The reality of what it looks like to trust God's providence completely, fully in his life. That's why his happiness was out of reach of his enemies. Because his happiness wasn't attached to, uh, to them and what they said was, could, could or could not happen in his life. But his happiness was attached to God and his faithfulness and his love for him. And he knew in his heart of hearts that God was working all things for his good And simply put, this passage helps us to see that God is at work for his people. For those those who love God, God is at working in their lives for their good. His providence is orchestrating the big and the small things in all of our lives, of his people, of his believers. It doesn't say God works all things for our comfort. It doesn't say God works all things for our financial security. It says, God works all things for our good. Are you willing to trust him with your life? Are you willing to trust his providence? It's easy to trust him when, all, when life does feel good, when life does feel comfortable, when, when things are upset, when things are difficult, when things are stressful, when things are busy. Are we able to say that, God, you're working in my life for good there's a story about uh, Joseph. Some of you know Joseph from the end of the book of Genesis. He dominates much of the end of that, that book there. And Joseph is a man who grew up with a lot of brothers. Uh, and Joseph was the younger one, and his brothers didn't really like him. I think they thought he was a brat. They thought he was very difficult, and they just didn't get along with him. And so they did what every good brother does. They sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph uh, soon found himself in prison because he was accused of something that he did not do, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. And he spent a good period of time in prison, and then through God's providence and through details we don't need to get into, he was released from prison. He was in Egypt, and he found himself serving Pharaoh. He found himself basically Pharaoh's right-hand man, serving as his prime minister with all this responsibility because of, God had how, because of how God orchestrated things. And then there came a day when a famine came, came into the land, and it affected Joseph's family, his, his father and his brothers. And the brothers said, we got to go to Egypt, and we need some help with this. And so they go to Egypt, and Joseph sees his brothers walk into the door. He sees and he knows who they are, but Joseph's brothers don't recognize him. And so this back and forth goes on between them, between them and, and things go on for a little bit. And finally comes the day where Joseph's brothers realize who Joseph is. They recognize him. That They understand this is our brother that we sold into slavery. And you can think that they're scared. They're a little nervous. 
He's got all the power right now. He's got the upper hand. What's he going to do to us? What's going to happen to us? Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Here is Joseph saying, I know all these things happened in my life. I know all these things that I did not want to see happen. But I know now that God meant it for good. You think about your life. I'll be honest with you. There's stuff that has happened in your life that I don't have the answer for. There's some tragic stuff that you've experienced. I don't know why that happened. But I do know the reality of this promise that God's providence is in your life and he's working out things for the good. He's working out a way, working your life in such a way that it benefits you, that it changes you, that it transforms you. This promise helps us see that God is safe. Bad things may happen to us. Bad things will happen to us. Difficult things will happen. But we know that God is safe. God is loving God is for us in a way that we cannot imagine. Let the weight of this passage impress upon you the importance of the future. That today is not forever, but there is something greater, something bigger, something more amazing that awaits us. There's a glory there that can't be compared to the sufferings that we have today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are a people that get caught up in the here and now. But you call us to a hope that we cannot see. You call us to a hope that we cannot put our our hands on in a physical way. Father God, we pray that the promises, the truth of the gospel, the reality of your love and your forgiveness would be real to us, that it would impress upon us what you will do, the promise of the hope to come, the promise of your glory, the promise of you fixing everything that is broken, the promise of what Isaiah, the picture that Isaiah paints for us, that you would help us to know that and find our hope in that. And that would change us today. That would put us in a place where our happiness is not in the reach of our enemies because you are our happiness. You are our security. You are our blessing. You are our, our grace, our sufficiency, our refuge, our strength. You are all these things. And we see that in the truth of the gospel. Minister to us. Help us in our weakness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.